0: I have a title. It's called "A Mirror Indictment." See if it makes sense by the time we finish tonight. A mirror indictment, and it's Romans one eighteen to thirty-two. They put that pen back to where it was before. Now I'm messy again. <laughs> Let's take a couple moments so Kevin can prepare for the message tonight. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Father, it is a privilege and a pleasure to gather together with a segment of the family of God tonight so that we can look into your word, which is the fulfilled Torah of freedom. We ask that we will benefit tonight from the teaching of your word so that others may benefit through the manifestation of your son in our lives, and we thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. Romans 118 to 32, a section belonging to Romans, a section isolated within itself in another regard. and I call it a mirror indictment. Romans 118 to 32 is an extremely important part of the whole argument and intention of Paul, the Apostle, in Romans the Epistle. This passage should not be taken as an integral part of Pauline doctrine, however. This passage should not be taken as an integral part of Pauline doctrine. Instead, this whole piece reflects the kind of rationale that a significant number of Jewish Christian minority in Rome, and there is a minority among the saints in Rome that are Jewish Christians, there is a majority called the strong, they were called the strong by the majority themselves, largely Gentile Christians. This whole piece reflects the kind of rationale and thinking that a significant number of the Jewish Christian minority in Rome used to judge their Gentile Christian counterparts, thus causing the rifts that we've been talking about. Robert Jewett, and I recommend him, I've got a little bit of a bone to pick with him at the end of his Short commentary calls it short uh, he 's been very helpful to me in my interpretation of the problem that Paul is addressing the ex- exigence that he 's addressing in Rome and he wrote about the mutual shaming that 's now a word that 's become in vogue in our time shaming the mutual shaming that was going on there between a numerical. And dominant majority of Gentile Christians and a minority of Jewish Christians. One of the reasons why the Jewish Christians were in the minority was because of the deportation that was ordered by Emperor Claudius in 49 A.D. Some give it an estimate of as early as 41 A.D., it lasted for a few years. Paul is anticipating the relaxation of that deportation and the re-entry into Jerusalem of Jewish Christians. And there were already there a minority of them. And by the time he wrote Romans, and that's anywhere between 52 and 57 AD, there was a beginning of the return. Among them was Aquila and Priscilla. They were also Jewish Christians. He wrote this, though, and he said, In religious contexts, and I hope you get this quote because it's very pivotal. In religious contexts, to accuse each other of dishonor entailed mutual damnation, with each side claiming divine approbation or approval for themselves and divine wrath against their opponents and notice that each one claiming divine wrath against their opponents this observation has interpretive importance in my view Romans 1, 18 to 32 is not Paul railing on the pagans with a hellfire and damnation sermon not nor is it expressive of Paul's gospel. But he allows this to be said by a representative of the group bias that exists among those who are called the weak in faith, pejoratively by the Gentile, their Gentile counterparts, and who on their part judge the self-identified strong in faith as still being the objects of God's wrath, despite their faith in Christ. In other words, the Jewish Christians think some of them do. Some of the Jewish Christians attribute heavy weight, even though they believe Christ died for our sins. Some of the Christians there, including some of the teachers that were running around the countryside, And when Paul went to Jerusalem, you'll remember in Acts 21, when he was entered into Jerusalem, he was told, you see, brother Paul, how many thousands of Christians there are in Jerusalem who are zealous for the Torah. And so even though they believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and that he died for our sins, they attributed and put a lot of heavy weight on justification by The works of the law, including circumcision, including observance of days and feasts, and also dietary laws. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, and Paul hits them just as hard in Romans 11, who assume that when God cut off Israel, he cut them off for good, when in fact Paul says, you better watch out, of your arrogance, Gentiles, because God is going to graft them in again. So the Jews who were still the Jewish Christians, a whole lot of them, but not all of them, still believed divine wrath was coming upon the Gentile Christian brothers and sisters in Rome because they did not adhere to the law. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, Attributed weakness to the Jewish Christians who still followed some of the Jewish laws of Torah and they assumed that they were still cut off. And they were part of the Israel that is cut off. Paul really hits a crescendo in his argument when he says the fullness of the Gentiles will come in play Roma totality of the Gentiles will come in. In Romans eleven twenty five, 25 and then. All of Israel will be saved. And this helps interpret Romans 9 in the very difficult place where the Calvinists have taken up the whole idea of vessels of wrath. That God has supposedly predestined certain vessels, certain people to experience divine wrath. And others he has predestined to be vessels of glory. When Paul brings it all around... All humanity is predestined for glory because Jesus Christ is the single inclusive representative of all humanity and he was the one who was rejected on Calvary. And he became, as it were, the vessel of wrath. That's where we're going with this. But up until then, let's consistently exegete this. Paul allows this to be said by a representative of that group bias. Campbell, Douglas Campbell, as we taught in Better Call Paul, believes that it's a specific teacher and that it's a sample sermon of a specific teacher. He may very well be right. I can accept Campbell's theory that a teacher is speaking this message and not Paul. But with the uh, the reservation, I re- also reserve this, that the intent of Paul in the inclusion of this section is to give expression to the roots of a judgmental attitude of some, but not all, Jewish Christians toward their crass Gentile counterparts in Rome. So Paul is giving the kind of sample discourse that some of the Jewish Christians in Rome, saints, believers, are adhering to this kind of contra-Gentile idea. Thomas Aquinas actually wrote a book called Summa Contra Gentiles. And that's what this kind of is, is a summa, a summary of against the Gentiles. Now, Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, and you cannot figure out Paul's view on things from Romans 118 to 32. You can't say Paul subscribes to that. He doesn't wholly disagree. He would be agree in agreement with the gross idolatry and immorality of the pagans, in the, especially in the Caesar cult and the mystery religions. But that's not how Paul preached. Paul's gospel is something he's not ashamed of, because therein, the righteousness of God, the divine act of deliverance in Christ Jesus, is disclosed, apocalypsed. It's amazing how much, by especially fundamentalists, but all kinds of Christians, attribute these this passage to Paul, and they hang their hat on it especially in judgment of certain parts of our society. That's, you can't say Paul believes that, though. So, not from this passage. Now, Paul combines gentle humor with a sharp and skillful rhetoric as part of his purely scriptural and spirit-empowered demolition weaponry. Remember, Paul is on a demolition mission here. And he says in 2 Corinthians, in an an epistle that he wrote just before Romans, really, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or weak and fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and the demolition of every high tower of arrogance that vaunts itself against the knowledge of God. And that we might bring into obedience every thought into captivity to Christ That's 2 Corinthians 10:4 to6. So I can accept Campbell's theory that a teacher is speaking this message, or a sample sermon of a teacher, with the reservation that the intent of Paul in this inclusion of this section is to give expression to the roots of the judgmental attitude of some of the Christians there in Rome against their Gentile counterparts in order to demolish the walls that are separating groups and that have segregated the saints into their separate corners. And that separation, that antagonism to unity, that factiousness becomes an obstacle to the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul intends to take to what is known at the time as the end of the world, the end of the, the earth. The end of the earth was considered to be Tarshish. Tarshish was a city in Spain. Paul believed that the ark of the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum would be completed when he got to Spain And that would be the uttermost parts of the earth for the time in which he was living. We'll talk about that a lot more in the future, maybe. But I'm trying to stay a little bit lean on the exegesis here so we can do a whole study in Romans within one or two hundred hours instead of fifteen hundred hours. On the other side, then, the claim of divine wrath against Jews and divine approval for Gentiles is expressed in Romans 11, 17 to 24. In both cases... Paul's ultimate response involves the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery of universal reconciliation, which was wrought in Christ at the cross and which will become universally manifested in the eschaton. The universal reconciliation was already wrought in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But the manifestation of that reconciliation is yet future in which there will be a universal chorus of praise to the Father led by Jesus Christ, which we've seen in Psalm 1849, quoted in, Psalm, in Romans 15.9. So all the Gentiles, whom certain Jewish Christians claimed were headed for certain doom as vessels of wrath will come in. That is, to the kingdom of God, to the realm of Christ. Romans eleven twenty five, 25. And that's what Paul says. If you don't understand this mystery, then you can only be wise in your own conceit. You can only boast in your own wisdom. As Jeremiah would put it. And... When all the Gentiles come in, then all of Israel, whom certain Gentiles assumed were all cut off permanently as vessels of God's wrath, will be saved. And so all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. All the Gentiles and all the Jews are, listen, this is the most important statement I've said at least tonight. All the Gentiles and all the Jews are, in the reality that is Jesus, vessels of God's mercy, whom he predestined to glory. Put Romans 9.23 together with Romans 11.32. Now, because this section in Romans, the epistle, hangs together as the trending attitude, of some Jews, including many of the Jewish Christian minority in Rome. I'm going to present it in its entirety in minimum bracketed commentary before considering some of its parts. So this is my translation of Romans one eighteen to 32 as one section of Romans. Not Paul's words. We've seen a reflection of wisdom of Solomon in it. We've seen a reflection of the epistle of Aristius in it, other Jewish writings, the so-called cosmopolitan Jewish writers at the time. So here it is, verse 18, for the wrath of God is being apocalypsed. The word mirrors Paul's word in Romans 1.17, the apocalypse of God's deliverance or righteousness. The wrath of God is being apocalypsed, that's apocalypto. Notice all the apocalyptic language that this writer uses from heaven upon all the impiety and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which can be known of God is plainly to be seen by them. Phaneron is also a word related to apocalypto. It's an apocalyptic verb. For God has manifested, again, the word phanerao is used, God has manifested it to them. That is, that which can be known of God. Verse 20, For ever since the creation of the universe, God's invisible qualities, both his eternal dunamis and divinity. I put that together because it's alliterative. Dunamis is power. And the word eternal is used here, only used twice in the New Testament. It's idios, not aeonios. Not aeonios there. Aeonios means, actually, aeonios in many sections of the New Testament doesn't even mean a duration at all. It refers, for example, for eternal fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That isn't fire that lasts forever. It's fire from another world. It was a kind of wrath from heaven. It destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it, Sodom and Gomorrah went through this destruction only in the sense of history, because in Ezekiel 16.55, Sodom will be restored and in the transformation, the universal transformation. But the reason for the temporal historical judgment was not homosexuality, though that was practiced rampantly in the cities of the plain. Ezekiel fourteen sixteen forty nine explains, and this fits into the rich man and Lazarus parable, they had great abundance and were neither thankful nor helpful to the abject poor. And that's the whole illustration of why Jesus gave the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and as we're going to teach, it is not a depiction of the afterlife. It's, in fact, a shutdown, a total shutdown by Jesus of a popular image of what the afterlife is like. People in hell, people in flames, and across from an eternal gap, people having supper. And Jesus shuts down that whole conception. And I'm preparing a series on that now, but it's bigger than I thought, but it'll be having the parable of the rich man and Lazarus at its center. So I told you I'd do a minor commentary here, but the point is idios, which means eternal, and then dunamis, power. That word idios is only used here in Romans and also in Jude, verse 6. But the word is also used in... 4 Maccabees, 4th Maccabees, and in Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Solomon 7.26. You can find it in your Revised Standard or New Revised Standard Bible, the word idios. So this again reflects Wisdom of Solomon and divinity. There, In creation, the, the eternal power and divinity of God are understood, being clearly perceived through what he has made as a result. They, and you'll see this a lot, they are without excuse. Gentile, pagans. And the word is anapologitos, anapologitos, which is without excuse. 21, because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks. Instead, their opinions became worthless and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became foolish. And, as the object of their worship, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the likeness of a corruptible man. That may be Caesar himself referred to here, who is... Deified in the eyes of the Romans, and of birds, and quadrupeds, or four-footed animals, and reptiles. For this reason, God gave them over, and the word is paradidomi, P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I, in the cravings of their hearts, craving here epithumia, lust is the impulse to assert oneself against God and over God's will and over other people. It's lust, which is uncontrollable apart from the spirit of God. Uncontrollable as are all human addictions. Uncontrollable apart from the spirit of God. Because many of these things have demonic origin, including addictions demonic power behind them So for this reason God gave them over in the cravings of their hearts to impurity in the degrading of their bodies among themselves They exchanged the truth of God verse 25 for the lie the lie And worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed for the ages. Amen Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. You see, now he's doing repetition, paradidomi again. For this reason God gave them over, paradidomi. That's a very important word, and as we've seen already, and I think Better Call Paul, we hit it pretty heavy, maybe even RTB B rev the book. Paradidomi, P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I. Very important word used in 124, 26, 28 in the sermon of the preacher or the teacher of righteousness who is not Paul. Doesn't mean Paul doesn't agree wholly with this, but it means that it's not Paul. For this reason, God gave them over to disgraceful passions for their females exchange the natural function for which For that which is contrary to nature. The males likewise. Letting go of natural relations with females. Became inflamed in their desire for one another. Males in males. Doing shameful acts. And receiving in themselves the punishment appropriate. To their perversions. And so. Verse 28. Just. Just. As they did not consider God worthy of being in their consciousness, God gave them over to a worthless mind to do that which is improper. Verse 29, they are filled to the brim with all kinds of unrighteousness, maliciousness, greed, and vice. They are full of envy. I like that one because in Mark 1510 and Matthew 27:18, Pilate, a Roman, knew that the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem delivered, handed over, handed over Jesus Christ to be crucified, out of envy. The mirror is being shown in the face of the teacher. Paul's going to say, "You do the same things." You do the same things. They made an image in the likeness of a corruptible man, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and worshipped him. What did you do, your leaders do, not all Jews, what did the leaders in Judea do when they demanded that their king, Messiah Jesus, be crucified? They said what? We have no king but Caesar. The mirror. That's what fundy preachers have to realize. Imagine a fundy preacher who condemns everybody except himself and his little clique, and then it's turned on them and someone says, Well, you do the same things. In your dreams, in your intentions, and by practicing the suppression of unrighteous the suppression of righteousness. The suppression of the truth by a false gospel. You're doing the same thing. It's a mirror indictment. That's what Paul's doing here. It's a mirror indictment. He gets really feisty here. You can almost see him. And Phoebe is probably performing this, and I agree with that possibility too. Paul's epistles were meant to be read aloud and sometimes even performed. This is a voice or a speech in character, and it's perfect for a performance. And Phoebe was the one who patronized, who gave Paul the money and was a supporter of Paul for his mission to Spain. So Paul was coming to Rome and, to Rome not to get more money for the mission to Spain. He was already well-provisioned monetarily, but he came to get some support, Perhaps some team members, some advice, some logistical support for this mission to Spain. Phoebe, which we've studied in Romans 16, the first few verses, may be performing this. So I think that's, that's a plausible thing. They are filled to the brim with all kinds of unrighteousness, maliciousness, greed, and vice. They're full of envy, murder, discord, treachery, malevolence. They are gossips slanderers, God-forsaken. Haters of God here means hated by God. They're God-forsaken people. Seems like Jesus Christ was God-forsaken. Contrivers of harm. Disobedient to parents. I like the Christian Jewish, or the complete Jewish Bible here. It's good on so many verses, and he's really, I like the way he put it. Mark Stern, I believe his name is. They are brainless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. They are senseless. The way I put it is they are senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Though they know the requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they also heartily approve of those who practice them. Now, all that's a speech in character, I believe. This may indeed be a typical sermon from a teacher who pro- propagates a so called gospel, which touts justification by the works of the law, even though he knows Christ died, that Jesus was the Messiah. But he preaches a gospel which propagates a justification by the works of the law with a decidedly Jewish bias. It is, I think, vital to recognize that these are not Paul's words. Paul turns this into a mirror indictment, not only in verse 1 of chapter 2, which we want to look at right now, but throughout chapter 2. Throughout chapter 2, he mirrors this indictment to This Jewish teacher and really not just to the teacher here's an important item not just to this particular teacher or this particular interlocutor or invent maybe even an invented conversation partner or our argument partner a debate partner that Paul has set up which he does throughout Romans but also everyone who is of that bias. And he's not, and this is emphatically a warning that I'll always be putting for, forth before you, he is not speaking evil of the Jewish people per se, nor do any biblical writers. Nor is he even disparaging or putting down Judaism as a practice of Jews. Judaism is not a religion. It is a many-faceted Practice of Jews. Paul said, I excelled in Judaism above my contemporaries. He does not knock Judaism. The ultimate realization of Judaism is the realization of the Messiah and of a universal reconciliation. All the prophets spoke of that. Every prophet in the Bible speaks of a universal salvation. So why is there so much resistance against what all the prophets have taught? in mainline Christianity? That's a question. I'm just putting the question out there. Apocatastasis pantone means universal salvation. God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets about it, proclaiming it. Paul's no different. And so, what do he do? He sets the tone in Romans 2 1. I, he says, therefore, you, he's talking to an individual man now. He's replying to 118 to 32 to an indictment on the Gentiles by a Jewish Christian spokesman. Now, to be fair, I would say this. I, wouldn't have to, I would not be dogmatic and say this is a specific teacher. But I would say that whoever is doing this speaking is representing a Jewish-Christian bias that Paul's trying to knock down. And he knocks down with equal power and zeal the anti-Jewish-Gentile arrogance, in Romans 12:3 he says according to the grace given to me by God he said stop being arrogant stop it everyone all of you it's the primary manifestation of curvaturi in ad se a curvature in upon oneself Away from a looking, the opposite of looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The opposite of looking up and unto Jesus, looking into ourselves and becoming proud. Therefore, you, O oh man, are without excuse. The same word used in Romans 1.20, anapologetos, anapologetos. You are without excuse, every one of you. Who judges so he not only hits the one that does that preaching but he hits every one of you that is according to this bias every one of you who judges according to this anti Gentile bias he's getting right to the heart of the matter in Romans in Rome you are without excuse every one of you who judges for while you are judging, the, while you are judging, he says, another, you are condemning yourself. Since you, the judge, do the same things. This will be fully demonstrated by Romans 3:10 to 18. But he also clamps down and I want to make this very clear so there can be a pincer movement here. He also clamps onto this judgmentalism from the other flank in Romans 14:10. We hit this a little bit last week. Now you This is the Jewish Christian who is of the weak in faith. Why do you judge your brother, your Gentile Christian sibling or you again now he points to a Gentile Christian saint of the so-called strong in faith the representative of a numerical and dominant majority of believers in Rome Gentile why should you consider your brother of no account despise your brother For you see, we will all. Key word in Romans, used 75 times. I think that would make it a significant term. We will all be present to be accounted for at the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord to me, will bow every knee and every tongue, will give praise to me. So then each one of us will give an account to God. So from now on, stop judging one another. Instead, judge this. Drop the gavel on this and make this decision, he's saying, that you're not going to put an obstacle or an enticement in your brother's way. He hits this pretty hard in in 1 Corinthians 8, too, where he says knowledge puffs up. If you a Gentile Christian, or a strong Jewish Christian who's liberated from the Torah strictures, you know that an idol is nothing. And so if you're going to eat a meal in which there is meat that was sacrificed to idols before it's eaten the next day, then go ahead and eat it and don't talk about it. But if you have a Jewish brother there that is, considers that to be against his conscience— and the guest comes in and the host comes in and says, this was sacrificed to idols last night, and look at this steak, we're going to eat it tonight. Then don't eat that steak while the world stands. Because why would you set an enticement before your brother? Why would you make him move past his conscience? So you'd say, I forgo it. No, thank you, I can't eat it. In deference to my brother, it was offered to an idol, not going to eat it. So why would you stop judging one another, Jewish, Christian, to Gentiles, and Gentiles, judge this. Don't put an obstacle or an enticement in your brother's way. The idea of a mirror indictment is represented very colorfully in the book of Revelation. I'm glad we went there first, believe it or not. Well, the traditional consensus that Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 17 to 18 is the depiction of the city of Rome. We discovered that it's more probable that she's a picture of apostate Jerusalem, who was the mirror image of Rome. Because Rome blatantly said Caesar is our God, but this apostate Jerusalem in the late Second Temple Judaism era said, we have no king but Caesar. So they represented, they mirrored the whole egregious idolatry and immorality of Rome. And so that Babylon the Great wasn't Rome. It was Jerusalem. Of the late second temple era not all Jews not Jerusalem the city per se as it exists today or as it existed in David's day but a Jerusalem that became apostate in the late second temple era and ended up so apostate that it its leadership murdered the Son of God and in doing that did all this other stuff with a vengeance that was equivalent to all this stuff that they blamed the Gentiles for practicing with a vengeance. So one could read the apocalypse of John as a Judean Jew. Imagine a Judean Jew, a Jew of a Christian in the first century and he reads this and he concludes with a sardonic Smile, that this is the depiction of Rome by a Jewish Christian prophet? Well, he'd be half right. John was a Jewish Christian prophet. But like the prophets of the Old Testament who were his brothers in Revelation 22, 9, and like Jesus... He was denouncing Jerusalem. It's like you see at night, these late night comedians, they always attack people on the other side of the fence. They don't have the guts or the stones or whatever else, the testicular fortitude to attack somebody on their side of the fence. They're not like the prophets. The prophets had to indict Jerusalem. Jeremiah. Why are you acting like a whore? He said to Jerusalem. Isaiah. Hey, you rulers of Sodom. He said to the rulers of Judah. John writes the city where they crucified our Lord, Sodom and Egypt, which is Jerusalem. He wasn't crucified in Sodom. He wasn't crucified in Egypt. He was crucified in the mirror image of these two idolatrous cultures in Jerusalem. So, read it. Isaiah 1, 1 to 17. Jeremiah 3, 1 to 13. I'll put this in print. Ezekiel 16 14 to 36 Ezekiel 16 49 What was Sodom's reason for their destruction abundance of bread lack of thanksgiving for it to God and a refusal to help the poor What is Jesus illustrating as going to be the upcoming destruction of Jerusalem A rich man represents the male counterpart of the Babylon the whore by wearing the same garb, the purple, and faring sumptuously and being proud and having a person of abject poverty right outside his gate that he ignores. Jesus is illustrating not the afterlife, but the problem of the present life, which brought about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he said, they don't need a vision of the places of the dead. They have Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets, Abraham said to the rich man. So he shut down this vision of an afterlife to say that's not what the afterlife is like. And he said, they have Moses and the prophets and the sum of the prophets and the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the point of the parable. Luke's gospel is a gospel of universal salvation from beginning to end. It's the whole thing. That's why Luke is called an evangelist. His whole, I'm going to show this first before I get to the parable of the rich man in the future. The whole gospel begins with Luke 3:6, with the quotation of Isaiah 40 and verse 5. That all flesh all together will experience the salvation of the Lord. All flesh, all together, will experience the salvation of God. And at the end, when Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets and Moses, and he says, they, they testify of me. And in Acts, which is also Luke, the prophets testified of universal salvation. All of Luke is a universal gospel. The whole thing is, even A.T. Robertson said that. So how can we take a little parable in the middle and make it the, give it the lie and say, no, it's not that because here's a man burning in hell. That isn't what Jesus is teaching at all. He's not unveiling the afterlife. He's giving the false vision of it so he can shut it down. That's just a hint of things to come. Jesus did the same thing that the prophets did in Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes, hypocrites, Pharisees. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that stone the prophets. Now your house is left desolate to you. The prophet speaks against Jerusalem just like Jeremiah did in the temple precincts in Jeremiah 7. He was denouncing Jerusalem of the late Second Temple era in her hedonistic avarice, her elitist religious apostasy, and her egregious immoral idolatry, which is exactly what this Jewish Christian preacher is railing against in the Gentile pagan community and culture. Mirror indictment. Really? Look at this. Judge not Jesus said lest you be judged with the same measure that you judge the same measure in other words a mirror indictment That person you're pointing your finger at in judgment God will put a mirror between you and him or her and you'll be finding yourself pointing your finger at yourself Jerusalem was also, in the time of Jesus and in the time of Paul, even went so far as to sacrifice her children to the beast, Moloch. The beast, in this case, was the Roman Empire headed by Nero, and the children of this woman whom she sacrificed were the Jewish martyrs, followers of Jesus Christ. So let's look at a small piece of this, and then we'll back off for tonight. Consider Romans one twenty three by itself, just one twenty three by itself to illustrate this. The speaker, not Paul. Imagine people written whole books on Romans one eighteen. what Paul thinks in Romans one eighteen to 32, and Paul doesn't even think that or say that. He doesn't throw it out either. He, he doesn't say, oh, it's good what they do in their orgies and all that stuff. He doesn't say that. He doesn't agree with it. But it's not him preaching. Paul doesn't preach that way. And when he does talk about stuff like that, he said, it's not, listen carefully. He said, it's not even edifying to speak of what they do in the darkness. And this guy is giving details of what they're doing in the darkness. Paul doesn't preach that way. He's like the clown on In Living Color. Homie, don't play that. See, Paul doesn't play that way. He doesn't. He doesn't teach that way. He doesn't. People love to do that, like get into the, the horrific details and salacious stuff. And Paul says that you should never do that. You don't talk about stuff like that. Not only because it's not edifying, but because Christ paid for it all and became all that at the cross. So consider 123, the speaker denounces the Greco-Roman culture for its exchange. And this is really at the heart of the matter. They exchanged the object as the object of their worship, the glory of the incorruptible God, they exchanged for the likeness of a corruptible man, not just corruptible man, a corruptible man, and of birds and quadrupeds and reptiles. It is more than interesting to note that in Psalm 106.20, and you can note this and, write and look it up yourselves, it says, they exchanged their glory. That's the verse, Psalm 106.20. They exchanged their glory, and the CSB note is correct. The Christian Standard Bible note says glory. That means their God. For the image of a grass-eating ox. For example, there's a four-footed creature. And guess who he's speaking about? Israel. Israel did it. Psalm 106:20, which in this Septuagint is 105:20. How about Jeremiah again? 2:11. He says, "Has a nation ever exchanged its gods?" Jeremiah. But they were not gods, he said, of course. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Exchanged their glory, God, the object of their worship, for useless idols. My people, who's that? When Yahweh is speaking, who's that? Mirror indictment. Here, this is Israel's sin. Therefore, you, O oh man, are without excuse, every one of you who judges. For while you're judging another, you're condemning yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. You, O oh man, is directed to the preacher of, of Revelation. of. Romans rather, 118 to 32. And every one of you, to all those in Rome who sympathize with this indictment of the Gentiles and keep it for their Gentile Christian brothers and sisters while they exempt themselves of its sting. Also more than interesting is that the image of a corruptible man may well be a reference to Caesar whom the Romans worshipped. Now, I say this is more than interesting because John, this time in John's gospel, records the words of the mob of Jerusalem Jews under the leadership of the scribes and Pharisees, speaking to the representative of Rome, Pontius Pilate, insisting that he crucify Jesus Christ. He says, should I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Did they not exchange as an object of worship their true king, God in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah, for a corruptible man, the image of a corruptible man? It's a mirror indictment. So it may also be detected that the worship of birds and quadrupeds and reptiles was also reflected in Israel after the flesh, who, according to 1 Corinthians 10, committed idolatry, sexual immorality, homosexual and heterosexual indiscriminate immorality. And in the Exodus generation, they also urged Aaron to make an image of a calf, To worship and lead them through the wilderness. Later in Israel's history, they worshiped the serpent on the pole. They kept it and they kept it as a totem pole to worship. They considered it a magic totem to be worshiped. And so the prophet takes it and smashes it and said, Nahashtan, you're worshiping the serpent on the pole, rac- rather than recognizing it as a metaphorical depiction of the Son of Man who was crucified for you. Later, by mirror- mirroring Rome, they worshiped the eagle of Rome, so birds. So when Paul quotes David's indictment of apostate Israel, look at it in Romans eleven nine. Moreover, David says, let their table. That's their very system of worship, their liturgical system of worship. Let their table. Remember, Jesus turned over the money tables. Why did he turn over the money tables? Because he had a particular problem with the banking system of Israel and with the rich in Israel, and there's nothing wrong with being rich, but there's something desperately wrong with being rich while in abject, egregious poverty is going on right next door and at your gate. That's what Jesus is after in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but people want it to be some afterlife thing so they can escape the sting of it in this life. They have Moses and the prophets, and the whole Moses and prophets hangs on this, that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and you cannot segregate the two. How can you say you love God, rich man, while you sit in your estate, and at the gate is a man named Lazarus, which is a very common name. It's like John Doe. At your gate is a nameless man to you, but a man with a name to Jesus who is suffering and has to beg for alms and has disease and the dogs are licking his wounds. How can you say you sit there and love God whom you don't even see and yet you hate your brother whom you do see? You see him. That's what Jesus is after. He's not unfolding the afterlife. You know what that afterlife scene comes from? The Egyptian folktale of Psy Osiris and Setme. And a folktale that's reproduced seven times in Jewish folklore. Jesus said, let me tell you your little folktale. And let me shut it down. Because it's not true. It's not a true vision of the afterlife. Let me twist it a little bit and make it an indictment on you today, an indictment on covetousness, on avarice, which the Pharisees suffered greatly from. And like Sodom, they had abundance, but didn't help the poor and didn't acknowledge gratitude to God. And they fell in AD70 just like Sodom fell 18 centuries before. But it was historical judgment, not eternal damnation. Let their table, what does he say? Become a snare. That's what gets what that snare is. A snare for birds because they worshiped birds. And a net, you know what that is? A trap for quadrupeds. And reptiles, because they worship quadrupeds and reptiles, and a trap, and a means of punishment to them. Let their eyes be darkened. What? Romans 121, let their eyes be darkened, same as Romans 121, here speaking of God's own people. In the majority. So they cannot see and their backs be continually bent over, not forever, but bent over in slavery for a time because they realized, they didn't realize really, that the law, Torah, was hijacked by sin. And so their attempts to be justified by Torah made them even more miserable than other people. So in closing, the indictment of the Gentiles by the representative of a certain Jewish Christian judgmental bias is held up like a mirror in his face. And thus, a mirror in the face of all the primarily Jewish Christians, though there were also some former Gentile synagogue goers, they were called God-fearers, Gentile God-fearers in the same group, who were judging their Gentile Christian counterparts. So it's to be noted here by way of a continual caveat or warning that Paul is in no way... Renouncing the Jewish people. Nor is he disparaging Judaism. At all. He is lambasting. A trending group bias. And our time is a time of group bias. Much more than that, that time. And there are group biases that are cultural. Ethnic. Ethical. Religious. And Ideological. There are more ideological tyrants today who hate and despise others and consider them to be senseless, heartless, stupid because they don't ascribe to their highly so-called intellectual, sometimes Marxist ideology. And they talk about being tolerant while they are the most intolerant people on the face of the earth. And we have to be careful about talking about American exceptionalism when in fact we may be in many cases talking about exceptional arrogance. It's hard when you had it, have it hit your own group. That's where the prophets had some, Micah called it, gaborah guts. That's what I learned in Bible school. Almost 200 messages had this phrase in it when I was going to Bible school. Get some guts. Get some guts. All right. The guts of the lamb. Philippians eight. Now, so Paul is lambasting a trending group bias that's prized by a largely Jewish Christian group in Rome who would sympathize with such a contra-Gentile discourse as Romans 1, 18 to 32. They'd be going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul dampens their enthusiasm, curbs it, just like he curbs the enthusiasm just as powerfully of the Gentile Christians in Romans 11. Interesting. He'll be just as hard on that section of Gentile majority who have uh, the malady of elitist arrogance on their part and who look on their brothers and sisters, mostly Jewish Christians, many of whom had just returned from the Claudian deportation of 49 AD and they look upon them with scorn. Now here they come with their holidays and their liturgies and their rituals and their feast of Purim and their feast of Hanukkah And they, yes, they believed in our Savior, Jesus Christ, but they can't. God's wrath is still on them. He's cut them off. Why do they think they can get back in? So it goes both ways. Both of these groups stood as obstacles to the expansion of the saving power of God, which is called the gospel which Paul intended to bring to the ultimate barbarian, which was the Spaniard at the time. Not this time, that time. Because again, Tarshish was considered to be the end of the earth. That's why Jonah booked a flight booked the flight to Tarshish. He wanted to go as far as he could go, the end of the earth, to get away from the call of God, to go to those terrible Gentiles in Nineveh. See that Jewish prejudice? It's been around for a while. Paul hammers both sides. And I'll close with something Robert Jewett said. I've got some bones to pick with him about Romans 16, 25 to 27. Serious, serious argument with him about it. But he was good when he said this. The frown of the legalist is just as inappropriate for the realm of Christ as the disdainful smile of the liberated. Let me say that again. The frown of the legalist that's Romans 18 to 32 in my view is just as inappropriate for the realm of Christ that's the kingdom of God as the disdainful smile of the liberated. Gentile who's liberated you know what he becomes a Pharisee of freedom and his freedom means more than his brother's conscience he doesn't limit his freedom for love now we missed last night so I'm going one one minute more all of this will climax here's the point of Romans here's the heart all of this will climax in a universal homardiology all sinned, all sinned and keep falling short of the honor of God, of receiving honor from God. You want to receive honor? You're receiving honor from men. All sinned, all have sinned and fall short. Keep falling short of the honor, the glory of God, all Universal harmardiology, which parlays Paul takes that and he parlays it into a universal soteriology. All are shut up in the prison called disobedience, so that God can have mercy on all you're all the objects of God's mercy. So why do you judge each other? And then, on the other hand, despise each other and consider you of no account? You just ignore that person. Like the rich man ignored, what's his name at my gate? Well, his name is Lazarus, and he's your brother. Paul then turns the universal homardiology, all of sin, into a universal soteriology, justifying life comes to all through the obedience of Jesus Christ, which in turn demolishes the walls of hostility that separate groups of saints in Rome in order to bring about an early manifestation of the mystery of God's will to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ. What a document. Romans. Romans. What a document it's not just a book I like Romans somebody says you go why do you like Romans I just well he's got good stuff in it and you know I said this one person said I love Ephesians 5 and I said why and they said cuz it's Ephesians 5 No, because Ephesians 5.32 talks about a mega-mystery, Christ and the church, the mega-mystery that the church is just a forecast of a universal reconciliation. That's why I like Ephesians 5. We're done. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity and for the attentiveness that you've granted to each listener tonight, which I prayed for today and keep praying for, because all this study... Is useless without prayer, without dependence upon you. It's just an intellectual exercise if it doesn't have spiritual impact in the hearts and minds and lives of believers. And that's what I pray for tonight. I pray that this message bears down on us like your mighty hand, and that we humble ourselves under that mighty hand in order to be lifted up with your mighty, elevating grace.